0: Good morning again. Uh, if you want to grab a Bible, you can. Ruth chapter 2 So where we're going to be. Those of you just joining us online, first, I apologize for not welcoming you earlier, but welcome. Glad you're here if you're joining us. Um, we are in the fourth week, halfway through this Book of Ruth series. We're going to uh, be in the Book of Ruth until uh, Palm Sunday, and then on Palm Sunday and Easter, we will talk about Palm Sunday and Easter because those are really, really important days for us in the year as Christians. Um But we are, as I said, we're going to wrap up chapter two. We're going to try to wrap up chapter two today. Um, At this point in the story, things are starting to kind of turn a corner uh, in the book of Ruth. Uh, Each chapter is kind of its own like, uh, you know, scene in a play, if you will, its own movement. Uh, And so just around the corner in view for Ruth and Naomi, who really is the main character of the book of Ruth, uh, is starting to be sort of the love of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God that we sang about today. That's why we sang that today. Uh, And and the important word for us here uh, is that word love, or it's the Hebrew word hesed. We're going to talk about that uh, a bit today. Um, This is the kind of love that we see happening in Ruth. And a really short, helpful description of this kind of love is simply uh, love in action. Has said is love in action. It's a lot more than that, but that's a good, helpful, short description. So we're going to pick up the story today in chapter 2. We're still in the barley field after Boaz has interacted with Ruth in verses 10 through 12 uh, of chapter 2. And she asks the question, why did you bless me so much? And he answers, uh, basically, because not only have I seen what you have done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, but God has seen it, and he's blessing you. And why is God blessing you? Boaz tells Ruth it's because you've placed yourself under his wings or under his care. You've trusted in the Lord, right? But now, Boaz really begins to be a channel through which God displays his love, his hesed, his love and action towards Ruth and Naomi, who are his people. Uh, and so we're going to read a chunk from the text of Ruth, and then we're going to dive in. So I'm going to read verses 14 to 23 of Ruth chapter 2. Uh, So these are longer chunks of the Bible than we might typically read in this kind of setting. Um, But if that's a surprise to you, you came to church today. So I don't know what to tell you. We pray, we read the Bible here. That's our thing. All right. And so 14 to the end of chapter two. And yes, I'm using dead tree technology paper. And just as a side note, this reminds me the very first time I ever preached and I had my notes and I didn't have page numbers like I don't have now. And my senior pastor at the time came up and mixed up my notes just to mess with me, because that's the kind of guy he is. It was hilarious. All right, Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the And don't reproach her, and also pull some, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it to her for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her food, uh, gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, "Where did you glean today?" And where have you worked? Blessed be the man that took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord. Now notice the Lord there is in all caps, that's Yahweh, his proper name. Blessed be the Lord. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, so we're going to focus on this invitation from Boaz here. Uh, He he says, what what I want you to do, I I want you to come uh, with me, have a meal with me and my servants. Now that might seem insignificant, like it's just a passing note. Uh, But this would be a very odd thing for an Israelite landowner uh, to ask someone who's just gleaning in their field to come and have a meal with him. It was very strange, right? Uh, But but in, in his kindness, he does it anyway. Uh, but the kindness then goes to kind of another level with Boaz. He doesn't just invite her to a meal. He doesn't just say, hey, why don't you come have dinner? Uh, he says, not only do I want you to come eat with me, but I want you to sit with who? What does he say? My reapers, my harvesters. Those are kind of the top level of his servants in this setting. They're, You would imagine like his closest employee friends, so to speak. So he probably has a good relationship. If you remember back, he called out to them and they blessed him. So we can assume he has a good relationship. And so he's almost like inviting them to like uh, family dinner, right? He's inviting, he's inviting her into family dinner with them. And then there's another little uh, l- little fact in that text that, that's even another level of kind of odd kindness. It's, it's kind of a big deal. It says that he's the one that served her the roasted grain. Now, why is this a big deal, right? In this culture, in this patriarchal setting, men did not serve women. So the fact that he's... Handing her, serving her the meal is kind of a big deal. Most of the time, not even his wife or his daughter would be served by kind of the man of the house. That's kind of the way this would work. They would serve him. So let yourself be surprised by this moment, right? And there's still cultures that are a little bit this way, right? The, the stereotype of the husband comes home from work and he just like sits down at the table and expects, woo, dinner to be there. It's kind of that thing, right? And so it's odd for him to serve her, The meal or to pass her the meal so don't impose on this sort of our norms let yourself be surprised by this little moment this is a moment where I would imagine the other servants maybe stop eating and kind of do the like wait a minute did we just see what we thought we saw like he's serving not only a foreigner she's a widow she's a poor destitute woman who's gleaning the field and he's now invited her into dinner with us this is kind of odd And he serves her. And then here's another uh, interesting, you know, important fact here. When does she stop eating at this meal? She stops eating when she's full, when she's satisfied. Now, not only is she satisfied, but she also has like a take-home bag, right? She has leftovers to take home for her and her mother-in-law. And so, again, put yourself in the story as a starving widow, a foreign widow Ruth would have probably had a hard time remembering the last time she ate a meal where she was full at the end of it, right? It came from famine. So most of us, for sure me, struggle to relate to this moment in this story. That's why it's hard for sometimes for us to get into these stories. Every every single meal that I eat, I eat until I'm full, and then I eat more because that's how we do it here, right? It's to the point sometimes where like I debate, and I had this debate in my head last night. Amy and I went out to eat. I debated in my head whether or not, literally, it's worth the hassle of getting a box, right? Like, that's privilege on privilege talk. Eh, it's kind of a hassle to ask the waiter to get me a box. I'll just be a glutton and eat the rest of this. And so I... I, I I, that's the point where it is, but you know, to, to, to ask for a box at a restaurant where literally what I do is I walk in, I sit down, somebody brings me food, puts it in front of me, and then takes everything away and cleans up at the end. And it's too much of a hassle for me to ask for a box. So I'm about as far on the other end of famine as you can get. So for me, to read that somebody ate food until they were satisfied is like, well, yeah, that's what you do. Right? But this is... Not the norm here. For Ruth and Naomi, living in a famine, every meal you eat is not going to be to satisfaction, Right? They're living in a famine. They're going to eat just to stay alive until the next meal. This is why, to bring it into our modern context, poverty in our world is such a difficult thing. Think about all the time that you spend between meals not thinking about your next meal, being creative, starting a business, doing your job. If you're hungry... All you can think about is, when am I going to eat again? And, and this is probably the way that Ruth and Naomi had been living for a while. Just, to, just, just enough water, maybe a little bit of grain, maybe a bite of bread, but not two because then I won't have the next meal. I better just have one, and they eat this way until the next meal. And so for the first time, probably in a long time, she eats until she can't eat anymore, and she has more than enough. Now, this meal is, a, is like, uh, Bob and I were talking about this this week, this meal is like the apex of this chapter. Uh, there's a whole thing we could go into about chiasms and like this literary device that they use, which chapter 2 is. But the meal here, and when Boaz interacts with her, is sort of the, the peak moment of this chapter, right? And so for the first time in years, she eats until she can't eat more. She has more than enough. And there's probably a whole three sermons we could do there about the symbolism here of the meal and the dipping and more than enough. But what, is she, uh, what does she do after this? Right. Let, let's keep going in the story. What is she? She eats, but then she doesn't just lay around the dinner table. Right? We, we know from this book she's a woman of character. We've seen already she's a hard worker. And so she doesn't just sit there and enjoy the company of Boaz like she probably was enjoying his company. He seems like a pretty nice guy. He's speaking to her kindly. He's serving her. She, she doesn't just hang out there. She doesn't even leave the food that she has for somebody else. She what? She gathers it up. She takes it with her, and then she gets back to work. She gets back to work. She starts gleaning again. And then, and this is where the kindness of God through other people again comes in. She goes home, and the first thing she does is what? Hide it for herself? No, the first thing she does is go to her mother-in-law, who she has said, where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. Your God's going to be my God. And in this case, what I eat, you're going to eat. She goes to her, who she's committed to, and she gives her the roasted grain. Now, Naomi, it's got to be... I mean, from the text, it's pretty evident. She's kind of surprised. Like, where did you get this? And she's a little bit of shock and awe with the amount of grain that she brought home, both the raw grain that she gleaned and the roasted grain from the table. But, but what we see in the text is that, like, she's so hungry that she just, Ruth just gives her something and she eats first, right? You got you to gotta fix that problem first. I don't know if you've been around a hungry kid before, but discipline works better after they've had a cracker, right? You got to fix that problem first And so this is what we see Naomi doing. She eats again until what? She's full and she's satisfied. And we know that she has leftovers because the amount of barley that ephah, that Ruth gathered was enough for probably a few weeks for two people. So she's satisfied. She's got leftovers. So there's not only her belly is full, but there's a sense of security that has happened now for the next little while. She's got leftovers. And then she kind of notices the reality of what's going on here right? She says to Ruth, wait a minute, where did you glean today? Now, if this was me and my parents, my mom might have said, where did you steal this from today? Because I was sometimes like that as a kid, right? She said, where did you glean today? And who was the landowner that showed you so much favor? In our translation in the ESV, she specifically says, who was the man that showed you such favor? That was her assumption. And so here is this kind of paradigm shifting moment for Naomi, She's bitter, right? She's Mara at this point in the story. Ruth keeps going with the good news. She she just says, well, I was in the field of Boaz. And it maybe took a second or two, right? She's maybe chewing that last bite and goes, wait a minute, Boaz? And so it takes maybe a second or two. In this part of the story, imagine a smile coming across the face of Naomi, the first smile in probably a long time. Right, People didn't recognize her when she got here because she was so bitter and, and, and full of grief. But maybe for the first time in years a smile is coming across Naomi's face. Why? Because she realizes what might be going on here. She realizes that something that she has been blinded to because of her pain is now coming into her vision. She realizes that the name Boaz means that she has a kinsman who can redeem her. And this is a Thread in this book, the the idea of kinsman-redeemer, it's a term we're not really familiar with. I've never used the term other than when I read the book of Ruth uh, or talk about it. So here's what a kinsman-redeemer is, kind of simple explanation. Here's what it means. It means that there's a living relative, a living male relative in this culture, who can buy back the land that your husband and his family uh, worked hard to keep so that you don't lose it, right? Think of land as your retirement. It's your security. It's what you own. It means now that you have a relative that can be financially responsible for you, and, and Ruth, when you, when you thought, you, for Naomi, he can be financially responsible for you and Ruth. When you thought you were going to die, just be a widow, and that would be it. right? Put yourself in Naomi's shoes. Like, I don't have anything. Then she finds out, oh my gosh, we have a kinsman redeemer. It means you have this male relative that if he sees fit... In the tradition of this time, he can marry a widow. And so now Naomi is realizing that this could be Ruth, right? She just came from a meal with the guy. He's our kinsman redeemer. Oh my goodness, this could be the Lord's hand. And so Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz is is this kinsman. He's our close relative, she says to him. Uh, And so the word there for what she says could be translated as redeemer. So kinsman redeemer is where we get that line from, that, that wording. And so that changes the game for Ruth and Naomi. It changes, the, it changes everything for them. It's just kindness on top of kindness from God in this text. On top of all that has happened up to this point, Ruth basically says to Naomi, listen, on top of all that, I stay in the field. He's telling me to stay in the field until harvest is over, which is Like, not only is he feeding me now and for the next couple weeks, but we're going to end up with like a year's worth of food at the end of this. And Ruth is going to have the dignity of working for it, which is incredible too. Right. So if you do the math, uh, Ruth would have probably collected grain, and and ephah is about 30 pounds a day, which was weeks worth of food, and the harvest is going to be about seven weeks. So if you do the math on that, the amount of grain that Ruth would have collected for her and Naomi would have been, again, about a year's worth of survival for these two widows. That's incredible. And it really didn't cost anything to Boaz. And so more than that, though, it's the fact that that Boaz has showed up now. And now it starts to make sense to Naomi that God can use him to sort of change everything in her life. It's amazing, though, how through this story in chapter 1, it's like uh, we're, we're kind of walking through the mud of the pain life, right? We're we're kind of just trudging through the brokenness there. Uh, there, There's a little bit of hope in Ruth, um, but there's a lot of bitterness and sorrow and and pain all through chapter 1. And then in this story, just with a couple acts of kindness, it seems like things are are switching. And and that word kindness is is the word, right? Because if you look at verse 20, um, we'll we'll see that word there, Ruth 2.20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, meaning Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, who is what? Kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So this word kindness is uh, maybe not jumping off the page at you because the word kindness just kind of means like be nice to each other. But here it's the word has said, And this word, although it only occurs three times in Ruth, I think the more you read Ruth, the more you study Ruth, that's kind of the thread through this book. God's loving kindness, right? God working in the margins to display his love for his people. That, that's why hesed only occurs maybe three times, but the actions of what hesed is are all over the place in this book. You see it almost any Ruth does anything. You see hesed almost any time Boaz does anything. You even see it in Naomi. And this is one of those words, like even in the New Testament, the word love, right? We, our English words just don't work. They don't do it justice. It, it, it gets translated in English as kindness, and it is kindness. But it's so much more than that. It's got so much more depth to it. The kindness of God to his people, the kindness of Ruth to Naomi, the kindness even on occasion of Naomi back to Ruth. And the kindness of course of Boaz, mainly to Ruth, but through through her to both women, but it means so much more than kindness, and so there are other words that we try to use to get there um, but but we don't get there and, and and as we see it through the Old Testament, we might call it loving kindness, God's loving kindness, his covenant commitment might be another way to call it. we call it grace, we call it mercy. We have all these words in English, and sometimes we just call it love, but the word has said is just got so much depth that it's hard for us to grab onto. But the only single English word that kind of works is kindness. And so that's, where the, that's the word we have. It's just that it's an inadequate word. And so if we get to this idea of this has said, this love of God, this kindness, and if we're just casual with it, we miss the meaning. right? We miss the depth of it. We miss the, the never-ending, no matter what, unchanging love that God has for his people, for you. This is the way God loves his people. This love that doesn't change because of any circumstance, this love, and listen to this part, that doesn't change because of your sin or my sin. You might abandon him, but he will never abandon you. That's how covenants work. And in a little while, when we have a meal together and we have the cup and, and, the, and the juice, we are going to remember the covenant that God made with us, the new covenant in Jesus' blood that He won't break even when you try to break it. This is how said works for God. right This covenant commitment, how it works is that it happens between two parties or two people even. Most often it's described as what God does towards His people even when we don't deserve it. We definitely don't deserve God's love, but He gives it anyway because He loves us. But for hesed to work, there has to be two types of parties before this can kind of really take place. The first party, uh, like you and like me in relation to God, has to be in desperate need. The first party in this hesed kind of covenant love is in desperate need. And then the other party, God in our case, or in this story, Boaz, has to not only have the desire to meet the need, but the resources and the ability to meet the need. So when you see... It, between people, between Boaz and Ruth, right? Boaz with the ability to meet the need and Ruth in desperate need. What we're seeing is an illustration of God's love for his people in a real historical story. So rather than just us seeing the word kindness in this text, what we want to see is a word picture, right? This is what the Old Testament is really good at. This is why we have the narrative books in the Old Testament. Not only are they telling you a story that happened, but they're also illustrating to you a big picture of God's story. And in this case, we're trying. God is trying to help us, as His children, His creation, to understand His said, His loving kindness. This is God kind of talking baby talk to us, right? The way I talk to my children, right now. They ask me a question way beyond their understanding. And I have to explain it to them in terms they can understand. It's kind of what God is doing here through these stories, these real life stories. And so through the relationship of Boaz and Ruth, we see it through the relationship of Ruth and Naomi. So what I want to do just to, to wrap up is just take a couple minutes. I want to look at this idea of Hesed in the life of Naomi. Now, I wanted to do all three, but there's just no way that would have worked. But we're going to focus on Naomi because... Um, as we said, this, it's, it's, it's like a Job through the eyes of Naomi, and so we're going to focus on her. But here's what I want you to hear underneath this kind of example from Naomi, is that God is not interested in us being bystanders who are just watching this story unfold. We're not spectators. What God is wanting is us to be willing participants that he's going to use uh, in his love by putting it on display in our lives so that he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world and and for our own good so here's what Naomi does for us and each of the three of them have a particular way that they display it but Naomi has her way and so what she does for us is she gives us an opportunity to see God's loving kindness at work when you can't see it She's a great resource for us to see God's commitment to us even in the worst of times, right? To know that God is in control when your life, when in your life everything has spiraled out of control or feels like it's out of control. That God in his providence is for your good and is for you and not against you even when it feels like the whole world is against you and you've lost that's and, it, and it's for you even when you don't know it or even when you don't feel like it. Now in chapter 2, uh, it's hard to grasp this because Naomi is in like a transition, right? She is in a transition back from Mara or bitterness back to Naomi or blessed. And it's kind of cool that the name transitions too. She goes from Naomi to Mara and then now she's going to go from Mara back to Naomi she she's mara as she approaches literally from bethlehem to or from moab back to bethlehem but because of the mercy of ruth her name is sort of changing back from mara bitter to joyful and pleasant and blessed naomi and and, and i know that we want, what we want to do in chapter 2 right what we want to do is we want to just See Naomi, see the thing change, and we want to fast forward. We want to fast forward to chapter, if you know the story, you want to fast forward to chapter 4, you want to see her holding Obed in her arms, because he's the grandfather of David, who's the greatest king of all time, and now she has a grandbaby and everything's cool, and he's the paternal bloodline for Jesus, and we want to rush to that, and we almost want to forget about her pain. But you know who didn't forget about the pain? is Naomi. She didn't just be like, oh, chapter 4 is here and I have a grandbaby now, so I just forgot about all that stuff that happened. If you've been through anything difficult, it's not that that stuff is there on the surface like it was, but grief doesn't just leave you. When I was in uh, Bible college, we did a study on art, and one of the, um, and I hope I don't offend anybody here, but I might, Um, one of the artists that my art teacher did not like was Thomas Kincaid. You guys know Thomas Kincaid, right? And the, how dare you? And the reason he didn't like Thomas Kincaid is because Thomas Kincaid painted as though creation had never fallen. And the problem is creation has fallen. And the world is broken. We know that there's better days coming, but we still feel the pain of that. And so Naomi had not forgotten the pain. God is bringing her out of the pain in chapter 1, but that pain in chapter 1 is always going to mark her. Right? Remember what she's lost. A husband and two sons. Think about losing a child. Think about losing two children. Think about losing a spouse. And even though the mercies of God are new in the morning, His blessings, and His blessings can be seen in the future, that event might not ever leave you. Does that tragedy, does that loss ever just fully be gone? No, it's there. You're reminded of it. And so it was this way with her. And so it's always with her, but what she forgot to see is that it was also with her during the pain, the providence of God. That God was with her in the midst of that pain. And so in Naomi's story, we see God's providence, we see his commitment, his love for her while the pain is happening. The problem with pain is that it can skew our view of not only God, but it can also skew our view of God's work in us and God's work through us. It clouds our vision, right? Naomi didn't necessarily lose her view of God. She lost aspects of it, but she she still knew that God was God. She still saw God as sovereign, right? In chapter one, she says it's God who's doing this. So she still has a vision for the sovereignty of God. She knew that he's in control, but she just forgot about his love towards her. And I wonder how many of us, we've walked through that, or maybe we're walking through that now. I mean, I know God is powerful, I know He's mighty, but has His love run out on me? Does He care about me? And she forgets His said love towards her. She begins to believe maybe that He's with her, but maybe He's neutral or maybe even against me. Like, how else do I explain this? And so what she was blinded to because of her pain was that not only was... God with her, but in his love that he was still for her and not against her. She was blinded to that. It's easy to see God's love when you're in the blessings, right? It's easy to see that God, believe that God loves you when times are good, the job offer comes, the doctor calls and says, no, the test was negative. When you get that big commission, when you get that raise, whatever it is, It's easy to believe. Yeah, God is good. He's with me then. But I remember when my family was going through, and most of you know the story, we were going through some of the foster care stuff, and the answer came back that no, this wouldn't happen. I remember the Holy Spirit, it had to be the Holy Spirit because I don't think of stuff like this. I just remember having the thought that, you know, God is, is as good on the other side of the answer no as he was on the front side when they said yes. That didn't change. God didn't change. He didn't change in Naomi's life either. And so for Naomi, although it was there, it was hidden for her. It was hidden to her for those years because she let her pain rule over her. And so her story is helpful for you and for me today because if you live through tragedy uh, or, or if you've lived through pain or you're living with loss or or uh, something right now that has kind of made your soul sick, if you know what I mean. You've asked this question that Naomi has asked a dozen times, right? A million times. Where is God? Why hasn't he stopped it? Is he for me? She lost her husband. And for 10 years, she lived without her husband, with these two boys who were married to pagans, and she lived without grandchildren. And not only did she live without the children, but she lived with two other women who didn't have children. And so the pain was compounded in those moments. And then she lost her two boys as well. And then she lost a daughter-in-law. Don't think she didn't care about Orpah. Naomi is feeling bitter towards God. She's like, what's the point? I'm just bitter. But even in those moments, I think Naomi is an example still for us that God's providence and his loving commitment were still with her. They were still for her. There's a question that Naomi was asking. You have to wonder if she was asking this as she's transitioning back from Moab back to Bethlehem and you've asked this question we've said it already has god's love run out for me right imagine walking back to bethlehem with her is this what it is lord and so in, in naomi's life the answer comes in chapter 2 and it's this it's this beautiful answer that comes through a simple act of mercy and a full belly of food because of boaz's grain and realizing that this man is the kinsman redeemer for the family so so i want you to know though we, we we can't lose sight of this—that it was because Naomi lived in such a dark place for such a long time that she noticed this small act of kindness, that that she began to see this tiny little light of God's love break through. And so the reality is that God's love towards her, His love towards you, His love towards me—it doesn't stop working. You might not think it's working, but it works his loving kindness, his mercy, his commitment to you, it walks and it works right alongside the pain. It's working in the pain. The question is not whether or not God is there. The question is whether or not we see it, whether or not we accept God's love for us. Naomi didn't, and her life ended up being worse off for it. And and though she's a blessing for us because we get to read this story, we get to see this story playing out, What could have had, uh, what story could have been if she had um, done something different with that pain and if she had had not just God's sovereignty in her vision and his power and his control, but if somehow she had been able to grab onto his loving kindness as well. And so that's kind of the hope for you. My hope for you as we think about this story is that you'll take a different path than the path that Naomi took. That may Maybe you feel like I'm on the precipice of just stepping into bitterness. Or maybe you're all the way in bitterness. And maybe it's this moment right now that God is reminding you, you know, I'm with you. My loving kindness for you has not ended. And so my hope is that we take a different path. Here's what I mean. That instead of taking the path of bitterness in the pain, I hope that, you see, that I hope you see Naomi as an example and instead take the path of trusting in God's love in the pain. Right? Notice, I, don't, I didn't say that you're going to be able to avoid pain in your life. You're not. Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. We know all that. But we can entrust ourselves to the Hesed of God in the midst of pain. We can say, I am perplexed, like the Apostle Paul said. I don't get it, but God, I trust you. And what I would just, the question I would ask for you, what's the alternative to trusting in God? What option is better than that? Have you considered that maybe there's more love from God for you than you can conceive of, but that the bitterness of the pain of this life and of whatever loss it is has blurred your vision for that love? And that perhaps this moment is a little voice of God calling you back saying, I'm with you. I love you. I'm here. Be in the pain, but trust in me and believe in my love for you. And so I hope that this section of this story will just be a little moment where the Hesed love of God can break through that bitterness, even in a tiny way. Even in a tiny way, and you can again begin to trust him. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, these stories. Thank you for the way that you speak to us through your word. And uh, we ask that if... I ask, Lord, if there's someone in this room or maybe a few of us in this room or even watching online who are feeling like we're in the place Naomi was in as she made her way back from, from Moab back to Bethlehem, that we're just bitter at life, that, Lord, would you break through in this moment, even now, would you give those of us who are feeling this way a sense of your love for us, that you've been with us the whole time, and that whatever we'll give you, you'll take and use. And you'll use it for your glory and you'll use it for our good and that what you have for us is joy in you. Would you help us to see that this morning? Would you help us to break free of the bonds of the bitterness of this life and walk in, yes, maybe some pain, but walk in your presence in the middle of it and experience the joy of your love for us that never gives up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.